Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 298 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Thursday, March 21st, 2013. On today's show, that's right, March Madness continues on the show today. Coming up in just a few minutes, physician blogger Jordan Grumet will be joining me to talk about social media and medicine. His blog is called In My Humble Opinion on Blogspot. And uh, finally, after the uh, interview, I'll be I'll ha- be having some uh, thoughts about the family medicine community making a statement this week on social media. All that coming up on episode 298 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, starting right now. Medicine and social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. I am your host. My name is Mike Sevilla, your favorite family physician host. What is this show about? I get that question a lot here. <laughs> this is social media through the eyes of a family physician. I encourage you to check out my digital library of stuff at familymedicinerocks.com. I've been having some problems with the uh, with the uh, link. Uh, this week I've been uh, changing over some stuff, so hopefully that should be up back online soon. Shout out to everybody following me on Twitter. All uh, 11,713 people follow me on Twitter. Thank you so much for that. And also big shout out to all 770 people who like the Facebook page uh, for this show. Thank you so much for that. Today is Thursday, March 21, 2013. It is 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and right here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, the second day of spring, it feels like 12 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right. Very exciting. And, yes, I do have – I am multitasking here. I have my NCAA uh, uh, basketball. I'm watching Memphis versus St. Mary's 9-7 to seven in the uh, in the first half. So I will be multitasking like everybody else here. Uh, so how how's your week going, kids? I uh, hope you're uh, doing all uh, well. Uh, uh, thanks again for your continued uh, support for the show. Again, uh, last week, uh, almost uh, 3,000 downloads for the uh, for the show. We're on iTunes. Uh, yeah, find us over there and uh, download the show. Thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, before we bring up our guest, I do want to uh, give you some uh, uh, coming soon type of things coming up in April. Uh, some great interviews coming up in April. Meredith Gould will be here. That's right. Uh, she's a digital strategist, author, blogger, founder of the Church Social Media Chat, Hashtag C-H-S-O-C-M. She'll be here. And uh, the interview was sparked by a tweet she did yesterday uh, that says this, quote, Ah, Twitter, I remember when public conversations offered rich engagement among tweets wrestling with great questions. 
now I only get that through direct message. So uh, that's an interesting talk. Uh, that'll be an interesting interview. And also coming up in April, uh, previewing some family medicine meetings, some huge family medicine meetings, you know, Society of Teachers of Family Medicine, uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians, National Conference of Special Constituencies. And we're all going to be speaking next month, uh, the Nebraska Academy of Family Physicians, our annual meeting. We'll be talking about social media there as well. And um, I guess uh, coming up uh, in just uh, a few minutes, here he's on hold here, uh, Dr. Jordan Grumet, and uh, he's an internal medicine physician in Highland Park, Illinois, according to his blog, uh, In My Humble Opinion. And it's going to be a fun show here today. We're going to be reminiscing here um, a little bit. And uh, he's known me all the way back to the Dr. Anonymous days. And for people who don't know what that is, I used to, I used to blog a lot more than I do now. And I started off as an anonymous blogger. Uh, but not so much anymore. So we'll be reminiscing about uh, the old days, which is like five or six years ago. Uh, and he's seen it all in blogging and medicine. And uh, read his post today uh, on Kevin MD. Here's the title. Uh, get the audio recorders ready. Here's the title. This is really the title. Are, are you ready? Here it is. Quote: Being an asshole is a matter of perspective. Unquote. I'm not. I'm not making that up, kids. Go to uh, Kevin MD. Not during the show. Maybe after the show. And uh, we'll be. <laughs> Check that out. Uh, but also, I'll, I'll, I want you to uh, check out his uh, blog, of course, uh, in my humble opinion. And uh, he has a, uh, a blog post there called Will They Follow? This is from uh, Tuesday, March uh, 19. And uh, that'll be an interesting read there as well. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for having me be a featured host here on this network. I've been a, a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a family physician in full-time private practice. And you can see patients five days a week in the hospital and in my office here in uh, beautiful northeastern Ohio. And uh, I will take my break, and uh, we will bring our guest on the line here. Very excited about this conversation. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution for more details. And also a member of the ProMed Network of Podcasts, you can go to promednetwork.com, and we will be right back. Family Medicine's leading voice in social media, in my own mind. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Sabella. And uh, on the line with us, uh, uh, someone I've been meaning to talk to for, for a very long time, a founder of the blog, in my humble opinion, Dr. Jordan Grumet. Uh, thank you so much for the time, sir. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm just excited to be talking to you in, in live person as opposed to uh, through the Internet. That's right. We should we should tell the audience. We should bring the curtain back a little bit. We have never actually spoken to each other. This is the first time, so this will be a very exciting uh, chat today. Yeah, and I, you know, I think you and I probably go back to about 2005. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Let, let's uh, let, let's start our conversation uh, there. I mean, we started right around the same time. Uh, uh, how did you start out uh, in social media and, and blogging in the first place? 
Well, you know, that story is interesting. Um, my brother, Andrew, actually cause was one of the early webloggers. And, in fact, in 2003, he wrote kind of this big article, um, Deep Thinking About Weblogs, in which he talked a lot about um, where things were going. And I had kind of been paying attention to it for a while, but strangely enough, the reason I started blogging was actually I had a website in which I sold artwork. And artwork. I was working on wow. yeah, and I was working on getting selling as much artwork as possible, of course. And I wanted my website to come up early and often when people searched for certain artists. So I talked to my brother, and he said, "What you got to do is you got to set up this website, but you need content that changes all the time." So he said, "You need to ta- attach a blog to it." And so I said, "Okay, I'll create a blog." And, and really, for my first six months of blogging, I was actually blogging about buying, selling, and ideas on artwork. Um, and then something interesting happened. I started thinking about blogging about my medical life. Um, and the reason I did that was actually I was on a on a blog, and we were talking about artwork. And we got into this deep conversation about how people seem to know what they're talking about when it comes to art. And, in fact, a lot of people see artwork, you know, kind of like the black dot on the white canvas, and they kind of don't get it. So I went into this whole story that I actually blogged that I called the ophthalmoscope story. So, (laughs) you know, so most people know the ophthalmoscope is something we use to look in people's eyes. But it's also a, a piece of equipment that really, if you want to really know how to use it well, it takes thousands of uses and, and years. But when I was in medical school, we bought our own ophthalmoscope, and as good medical students in physical exam and diagnosis, we went and started practicing looking in people's eyes. And I would do this, and I, you know, all my family members got tired of sitting there while I shone my little light in the eyes and tried to see what I was supposed to see. And at first, all my Something happened kind of in third year. All of a sudden, my fellow medical students, we'd be rounding with an attending, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, there's AV nicking, which is a sign of hypertension. And I remember scratching my head going, I don't see all this. And the attending would be agreeing, and they'd all be talking about it. (laughs) And at some point, I started feeling really bad that I wasn't seeing what I was supposed to see, and I was somehow inept and was going to be a horrible physician. Well, by the fourth year, you know, we went all went out as a bunch of us medical students, and after my, my friends got kind of drunk because they drank too much, I started really asking them, like, right. so how did you learn how to use the ophthalmoscope so well? And they all started laughing. I said, we never saw any of that. We were just faking it because we couldn't see anything. <laughs> and right. the truth of the matter is, you know, eventually I did an ophthalmology rotation and started looking at dilated eyes, which makes the ophthalmoscope much easier. And eventually, by no means an expert, I started learning little tricks of the trade, and I got better, and I, I could appreciate it more. Never was I perfect, and never was an eye doctor. And I kind of ended this post saying, and, and so it is with artwork. And what was profound about it is I realized that I loved writing about my experiences in medicine. And when I did that, I went on the Internet, and I went to Google, and I said, medical blogs. And the first one that came up was a guy named Grunt Doc out of Texas, an ER doc, a yeah. pretty well-known, famous blogger. Exactly. And I was, me too. I was hooked. Yeah, and I was hooked after that. And that was kind of the end. And I changed my blog and completely went from artwork to the experience of medicine. Wow. So, so you talked about artwork a little bit. What kind of stuff did you write about artwork? I'm curious about that. You know. When Again, everything has a story. So when I moved, I live in Evanston, Illinois, and when I moved to my house, I bought this four-bedroom house, and, of course, the walls were all empty. 
And I went searching for artwork and found all this artwork that I loved. But the problem was, you know, you go to a gallery and it was two or three thousand dollars. And I was like, there's no way, right. you know, this is when I was just getting out of residency. I wasn't going to pay two or three thousand dollars for artwork. But through eBay and some other connections, I started finding people who sold the same artwork for like five hundred, six hundred dollars. And when I did this and I started buying artwork, I'm like, wait, there's an idea here. And over years, I kind of ingratiated myself into some of these people who were selling their artwork cheaply and found ways to get it even more cheaply. And so for me, that was the impetus to start selling artwork, and that led to the blog. But, you know, I would talk about, you know, kind of what's exciting in artwork today. And, you know, I started following a bunch of artists and their blogs, um, and there's some gallery owners who blog. So, you know, there's just a lot of different topics and issues uh, that they got into. And it, the truth of the matter is I was somewhat a faker in that world because it really, I was interested in the selling of artwork, and I thought that was cool. But the, these people were really deeply, these were people who were doing masters and PhDs in artwork. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons I eventually made the change too because while I liked blogging and talking about that stuff, it wasn't my passion. So, you know, you go and try to blog on a regular basis on something that isn't your passion, you don't get very far. But when I started talking about medicine, generating content wasn't hard because I felt it, like it was stuff that I was dealing with every day. Were you always kind of a writer, kind of, you know, growing up or, or like journaling or, you know, uh, any or you know, were you like in the school newspaper or did you have any kind of formal or, or informal background in writing at all? Yeah, most of my writing was informal. So I always wrote, um, even from a young age. Um, not a huge amount, but what would happen is things would build up emotionally or I'd go through things, and then I'd go through these periods of writing daily, weekly, getting down massive amounts of stuff, and then I'd stop for a year or two years or three years. Um, so I always kind of had that itch. Um, I'm a relatively emotional person. I kind of feel things deeply. So there's always something festering inside that I feel like I have to think about and talk about, and writing is just one of the best ways to get it out. Uh, my guest online is a uh, physician blogger, and follow him on Twitter, uh, uh, Jordan Grumet, and his blog is called uh, In My Humble Opinion. And, and I hope I'm saying your name right. Am I saying your name right? <laughs> um, it, it, it's Jordan Grumet, but people say Grumet. I've heard Grum, I've heard Grumet, I've heard all sorts of stuff. So I'm used to my name being mispronounced, actually. I, I get it mostly mispronounced. Okay, well, I apologize about that. Well, let's kind of go back here a little bit. So, um so did you have family members in medicine or in the medical field? How did you end up going to medical school in the first place? So my father was a physician. Um, and you've probably seen this in some of my posts, et cetera, I talked about my father. My father was an oncologist, and he died when I was eight years old from a, a berry aneurysm, so he had a brain bleed. Um, and I kind of grew up, you know, one of the interesting conundrums of our lives is, you know, I kind of grew up idolizing my father, and he died at such a young age that I think it just stuck with me that I was going to do what he did. So I was one of those people who, from the moment I can remember, thought, okay, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, so it was something that was always just with me. Um, yeah, well, we're very similar in that in that respect because uh, my, my father is a, a physician, and uh, uh, he uh, he's a surgeon, um, and that was kind of uh, – my path in life when I started a medical school and then I did my third year rotation, I'm like, I can't do this. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so it, 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 it's, it's interesting you know, growing up in that type of uh, environment, um, you know, having all these influences and things. And uh, uh, it's really interesting that it's your father's position. Yeah. And it, you know, it's funny because 
um, you know, he died, well, it must have been like, nine, so he died in 1982. So now we're in 2013. I still interact with people who knew him. It's very strange. I've had people call me his name in the last year accidentally, like people who knew him or, you know, he, he was at Northwestern University and a lot of the older guys I work with, the 60-year-old older physicians, actually trained under my father at Northwestern. So it's, it's, it's a real weird thing um, to be in a space uh, that he was in and to be identified the way he was. Um, so it's kind of, it, it just feels almost like a family tradition. So do, do you live uh, close to where you grew up? Because that's, that's kind of my situation. And, uh, you know, when I was going through medical school and taking my rotations and things, I would, you know, take rotations in the hospital where my uh, father was working. And, and uh, you know, you kind of got that a little bit as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I, I grew up, I live right now in Evanston, Illinois, and I actually grew up in Evanston. I've moved various places for residency, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, I'm kind of in the same space. Uh, so when you started medical school, was it always kind of internal medicine the whole way, or or were you like you know, probably typically like other medical students when you go would talk to people or have mentors or go in different rotations, you were kind of thinking about different specialties? I was definitely internal medicine from the start. Um, I when I was little, I had a learning disability and I had a lot of trouble with spatial relationships. So I knew things like surgery and radiology because they're so spatial. Um, I, I didn't even consider those as possibilities. I certainly wanted something um, as cerebral as possible, so I really love the idea of internal medicine. Um, I definitely played around with the idea of specializing. In fact, I actually filled out everything and had my you know recommendations and everything ready for pulmonary critical care but decided not to in the end, um, which is a story unto itself. Um, but, you know, uh, so I always knew internal medicine. When I first came out, I was a hospitalist briefly because I, I was really into the hospitalist movement. Um, but actually, general internal medicine, I think it's been a wonderful place to be. And um, it's just exposed me to so much of humanity as well as, as disease. So um, two things that, that interest me greatly. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what if you could uh, expound on that a little bit? Because you know, most people who go into maybe I'm generalizing, but most people who who do a internal medicine residency, I would think, specialize in in general internal medicine. The art uh, of general internal medicine really isn't uh, selected that much or chosen that much. Um, what, uh, you know, what, what you know, what do you get out of it? What what is so uh, pleasing for you? What uh, what benefits and and uh, you know how do you feel like you're really helping the patient during general internal medicine? Well, I can say there are a few things. One is um, the thing I strive for, the, the the thing that keeps me up at night, excited, and, and and makes me have a lot of pride in medicine is I try my best to be a master diagnostician. So what I mean by that is I love to get the undifferentiated patient in my office and try to sort out a thousand things that could be going on with them. Um, and I think it's thrilling. I think the detective work, I think there's, it takes so much brain power, so it takes a lot of IQ, but then it also takes a lot of EQ or, or you know, emotional power to sit with someone, sort through the psychiatric, psychological stuff, sort through the physical stuff, and then narrow down what that person actually needs and try to help them get that. And I think... There's nothing like that to me in medicine. And I love the idea that I have the broadest knowledge. I love the idea that someone can come in and see me and it could be a kidney problem or a liver problem or a skin problem. It could be a rheumatologic problem. It could be anything. 
Um, and to me, I think that's that's just what I strive for, to be smart enough, uh, to be in tune enough with who walks in my door to differentiate between all those possibilities, um, I think is amazing. And, and that's really what I strive for, and that's what excites me about medicine. Um, I do like also just the human interaction. I mean, you see a window into people's lives and souls um, by seeing them on a regular basis. I have patients, you know, who I've been with for five or ten or, you know, more years, and you you stand with them when their spouses get sick, and you stand with them when their kids graduate from college, and you're there. And uh, it gives you such an amazing insight into that person that when they walk in my door and something's wrong, I sometimes feel it before they say it. Um, and it's just because you have this familiarity. Um, and I, I like that. I didn't know how much I'd like that until I actually started practicing it. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, we, we definitely have a kinship uh, because, I mean, general internal medicine and family medicine, I mean, I, I hear you describing, you know, what, what gets you up in the morning. And, and that, that's the same thing with me. You know, it's just, you know, a lot of it is this continuity of care and, and you know, and, and seeing these patients as you explore with them, trying to, to, to help them with their health and wellness, how to help them manage their, their chronic illnesses and um, seeing differences, bringing them through their uh, challenging times. Um, and it's a, it's great uh, listening to people uh, uh, describe and talk about um, what they're passionate about, um, what gets them up in the morning, why they do what they do. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just uh, a lot of what you said, I, I hear a lot of my family medicine colleagues uh, say as well, and uh, it, it, it's great hearing that. And, and, you know, we don't, we don't get that enough in primary care uh, as far as, you know, uh, physicians, uh, saying, hey, this is what I do, what I do. I mean, of course, there's a lot of stuff that, to complain about, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But, but I mean, uh-huh. we, we need to hear we need to hear that more, you know, in, in our in our specialty, and and to say, hey, you know, th- this is why, you know, primary care is important. This is why we think it's important. It's, that's why we think that that uh, it, it is the backbone uh, of our medical and healthcare system. So it's it's great to hear you say that. And I don't, you know, I think some internists or people who train in general internal medicine try to separate themselves from family physicians. Um, but the truth of the matter is, when it comes to treatment of the adult, I don't see huge differences. I mean, yes, there's some more procedure-oriented things, et cetera, and certainly, obviously, I don't see children or do lots of obstetrics. But in general, I think we've created boundaries between those two fields that are a little bit artificial. I think we, lots of things we do are similar. And I think um, we come to the problem with the same mindset. Uh, Exactly, exactly. And and I think we have let, you know, other people or other groups um, let the, you know, primary care specialties, general internal medicine, pediatrics, family medicine, they, they have let us kind of be siloed out um and 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 you know try to bring out the really differences among us and and we are all you know kind of striving towards with the same type of you know a lot of core beliefs like continuity of care and that type of thing and and uh, uh it's sad that that you know sometimes that physician and physician groups want to try to you know divide you know our 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 specialties it, it's kind of sad and but you know when we're looking at bridging towards things like Healthcare reform and, and those type of things. So, you know, primary care is something that really kind of brings us together, and, and that, those are opportunities I think that that we need to to work together for some of those solutions. 
Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And I think as disparate groups of physicians, um, it's always best if we find common ground as opposed to point to our differences. Because I think as time goes on, we, you know, we are the only ones who walk in our own shoes, which means that I think supporting each other um, is really important. And I think having more of a united voice will serve us better um, for patient advocacy, but also for physician advocacy. So uh, I think trying to decrease those boundaries and erase them is always a good thing. Um, I guess on the line is a physician blogger, uh, founder of the blog, In My Humble Opinion, uh, Jordan Grummet. Also uh, follow him on Twitter uh, as well. Um, so let's just kind of get into the bad stuff here, we, you know, which is, you know, I mean – we don't have to get into it, but I think I think it's, it's a little bit more rich of a conversation because it's you know people who have listened to this show before know that you know I, I like to bring out some of that stuff uh, so because there's opportunities for change. Uh, so tell me a little about you know when you're in your practice um, and, and you know some of the uh, some of the, the frustrations that that you've seen, and we're going to lead up to you know some of the decisions that you've made. Um, as far as clinically and, and decision making, but kind of share with the audience, um, especially people who may not know, you know, uh, some of the difficulties you know, it is to be a primary care physician in our in our uh, healthcare system today. What, first and foremost, I think to understand people like me, you also have to understand that my practice is 75% Medicare, um, so I take care of people from the age of 20 to 105, um, but the grand majority are between 65 and 100. Um, there have been a lot of changes going on with Medicare over the last few years. And most people, you know, a lot of people complain about reimbursements. You know, reimbursements are not even the biggest thing to me. What really has changed for me is the number of administrative and clerical jobs that we've been taking on that really take us away from patient care. Being kind of more of a purist, what I want to spend my moments doing and what I think is the value added in my skills is to be in front of patients, talking to them, looking at them, examining them, and, and, and you know, discussing their medical problems and issues. Especially over the last two or three years, I feel like we've had more things that are pushing into our time. The paperwork has expanded. Um, there are things called, you know, face-to-face evaluations. If you want to get physical therapy for a patient now coming out of the hospital and you want home health, you have to fill out new forms. The number of forms has expanded that we have to fill out. The number of denials for Medicare for things like power wheelchairs and the such has increased. And the mandates for meaningful use, meaning that we use a computer correctly, while well-intentioned, actually take our time away from having our eyes on the goal, having our eyes on the patient, and put them squarely in front of our computer. And seeing this, what concerns me and what has really worried me is I'm spending less and less time caring for the patient. I'm spending more and more time doing physical tasks that are peripherally related but not specifically caring for the patient. And as reimbursements stay the same or get lower, you find yourself seeing more patients but concentrating on them less. And what I really believe my ability is our skill as physicians, our training points us to using our brain, using our physical uh, powers of examination and our mental powers of the thought process we invested so much into to help people. And I just feel like we're, we're taking our eye off the ball. And when I look around the hospitals, 
and I look what we're doing, I see physicians spending less time examining patients and more time sitting in front of the computer. I see tasks not being done, and I see a general chaos. And this chaos is definitely different than it was five years ago. You know, I was in a hospital system that went live with an electronic medical record in like 2004. So I've been doing this for a long time. I've been using electronic medical records for a huge amount of time, and I'm very facile at it. Um, and I've used three or four different ones. I mean, currently right now I go to two different hospitals who use different systems. I don't think this is good for medicine. I don't see the quality of care getting better. I think it's getting a little worse. I don't think I don't see any less errors being made. But what I do see is is that we're we're not spending the time that people need, and it's creating problems. And um, this is not the medicine I signed up for. It it has sparks of it. It has pieces of it. When I'm in that exam room seeing my patient, and I turn the computer to the side, and you know, examine them or hold their hand and comfort them or do those things that we really do, that's the medicine I signed up for. The rest of it is just clicking the clicks and filling the forms out because I have to because someone tells me in order to be a doctor now you have to do those things. Um, And I think we're really spinning our wheels. I, I don't think we're helping ourselves. I think we're actually hurting ourselves in the end. Uh, yeah, I, I cannot agree with you more, and, and uh, you, know, you are not the first physician to come on the show to say that and, and to kind of, you know, reframe that for the audience again. You know, I have a lot of my patients that come into my office or see me in the hospital, and, and you know, they say, Dr. Sabella, you know, I mean, you know, we, 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 we like this computers, we like this blah, 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 but... Uh, why are you spending so much time looking at the screen? <laughs> and, so I, and so I have to explain to them that, um, you know, a lot of this computer system, obviously from the government mandated, uh, everything from the government pretty much, not everything, but most things are well-intentioned. Uh, but um, that I spend, just like you said, spend time at the computer proving the things that I did in real life by clicking and typing and doing all that stuff. Um, and for people who have been in the hospital, you know, recently, you know, you're seeing this not just with physicians but with nursing staff as well. You know that they're spending less and less time at the bedside, more and more time at a computer, proving and documenting things that they have already done. Uh, and and you know it's very frustrating, um, and it's not going to get any better. Um, and I think that is. Uh, uh, especially for general internal medicine and family medicine, it's really kind of separating things um, in in the fact that there are a lot of physicians, uh, and I have to explain this to my patients, a lot of physicians who don't go to the hospital and to the office anymore. They have to, they buy, you know, they're either only in the office or only in the hospital that has uh, really uh, taken shape here in our small community here. Uh, where there's a lot of doctors who don't go to the hospital anymore. And, Jordan, I know you know this already, but I'm just kind of explaining this to everybody else. Uh, And it is a change in how medicine is delivered. Um, And patients, especially in this small town, it's difficult for them to understand that um, because they're used to their doctor being everywhere, which is what you and I signed up for. Uh, so, you know, a lot of what you're saying, Jordan, is, is, you know, exactly what I'm hearing not only from from docs on this show, but people in my community as well. And, and I can hear the frustration that, that, you know, that you have, and I have the same thing. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't see anything different coming down the pike. And, and that is, that's very, very frustrating for not only 
me and you, but patients as well, and that's where the sad part is. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, as you're alluding to, um, clearly we're not going back, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I believe in the idea of electronic medical records. I believe in the idea of connecting to all the other hospitals in the United States and being able to share information. I believe in all that. Um, I just don't know if we've gone about it correctly. Um, and it's funny because healthcare reform as well as electronic medical records and this this parceling of services we do, you have your hospitalist who sees patients only in the hospital and then your office doctor, and now all of a sudden we're going to have what are called sniffists or people who only go to nursing homes. Um, on the other hand, when you really listen to the healthcare reformers, what are they starting to say? They're starting to say we need to have better continuity. Believe it or not, in five years, they're going to start telling doctors that you need to see your patients in the hospital office in the nursing home because it's better for continuity. Exactly. These things are cyclical, um, and they come and go, but I think the damage we do is dangerous. And You know what I always say in medicine is we're not perfect in medicine, but we've come after centuries of practicing medicine to believe in something mostly called evidence-based medicine. It means we test theories before we push them on the public. The problem with a lot of healthcare reform and electronic medical records, et cetera, is these are completely untested ideas. So the Rand Corporation back in who knows when, 2005, said, you know, our studies show that everyone should invest in electronic medical records and it's going to save money and make better patient care. And then, you know, in the last year, Rand Company comes back out and says, our studies show that it didn't do any of that. Oops, maybe the physicians didn't use it right. Well, or maybe it was an untested opinion. Um, that wasn't necessarily right. Um, so your frustrations kind of, you know, you know, built up to a point where you wrote this blog post and and you kind of announced that you've made a decision on how you're going to um, deliver healthcare, uh, you know, to your patients, and um, um, and there was a big reaction to it on uh, on social media. But tell the audience a little bit about the blog post and, and your decision and kind of the decision behind the decision, I guess. Well, let me tell you what I'm telling my patients right now when they walk in my office and I start talking to them about this change I'm making. So the things that I mentioned before, the changes in medicine that are making me sad, really have over the years, but in the last few given me kind of a crisis of conscience. And one day a few months ago I sat down and said, I personally do not believe or agree with what's happening, well, what am I going to do? So I sat down with my financials, and I looked at kind of how do I make money and what do I do? Well, I learned something really amazing. See, I'm the medical director of a nursing home, and I have lots of nursing home patients. So usually the first thing I do in the morning is I go see my nursing home patients, and when I'm done with that, I go see my hospital patients. When I'm done with that, I go to the office and work all day. What I actually find out is when I crunch my financials, most of what I pay myself is actually from the nursing home patients I see in the morning, and really, it's kind of a zero-sum game. I hit the office, I see all these patients, and pretty much every dollar I make for that goes to pay for that same office. So I realized financially, if I had just stopped working at 9 a.m. every morning, I would do just the same as if I continued working. It wasn't making it. So that kind of put me in a different place. It said, well, I do this nursing homework, and this nursing homework supports me, and it's great, and I love it, and I like being a medical director of a nursing home. But now I kind of have some freedom because this office isn't doing much for me. So, you know, I wrote this post called Stepping Out or Stepping Out, and what it means is I've decided to step out of the system. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I've decided that 
what Medicare is foisting on us and what the insurance companies are foisting on us, I can't really change. And I want to keep seeing patients in the nursing home, so I have to take those insurances. But what I can do is economically release myself uh, from being beholden to them. So if I don't depend on Medicare and if I don't depend on insurance companies to make my money or do what I want to do, then I can kind of pick and choose what I believe in and what I don't. So what my plan is and what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue doing my nursing homework to support me, but I'm going to change from the practice I have currently, and right now I have about 2,500 patients, to doing what I call a micro-practice. Um, I'm going to only take care of two to maybe 300 patients. I think if I only have two to 300 patients, even if I have to do all that Medicare paperwork, et cetera, I can spend a lot more time with them and I can give the kind of care that I'd be proud of. What I'm really playing around with and what I think I'm going to probably do is I don't think I'm going to even have an office. I think I'm going to go to people's houses. I mean, I don't really need the physical space, and I certainly don't need the staff and everything having to do with it. So if I have two to 300 patients and they're geographically in a you know somewhat close area, um, I can give my patients my cell phone and my email, and uh, you know I can go to their house and examine them and see them in their environment instead of bringing them to my artificial environment. Uh, and, you know, I think that's kind of the way to go. And it'll be, in a sense, a somewhat concierge practice. What concierge means is I'll probably charge them a yearly fee for that service of being very available and, and actually going to their house. And with that kind of model, you know, even if a tenth or a twentieth of my patients sign up, I'll do fine financially, uh, but I'll have enough time to actually do what I believe is right and you know, not be beholden if Medicare wants to cut me 10% because I'm not using my computer meaningfully for them. Oh, well, you know, I don't depend on Medicare for my payments. I mean, my patients pay me my annual fee, and that'll take care of it. Um, if they want to, you know, bother, you know, be angry at me and cut me 1% because I don't e-prescribe or, or prescribe electronically, I prefer to call the pharmacist on the phone and discuss it with them. Oh, well, you know, that's, that's up to Medicare. But, uh by stepping out of the system, I've given myself a certain freedom. Um, and it's not just about me. Um, I like the idea of this freedom. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. I think what's happened with physicians is our relationship with the government, healthcare, and Medicare has almost become like a bad relationship. It's like being dating or being married to someone who doesn't really treat you right. And at some point, you can live your life deciding you're going to stay with that person who doesn't treat you right. Or you can leave and say, you know what, I value who I am, I value what I bring to this world, and you've decided that what I am is not valuable to you. Well, that's your decision, but I then have the choice of leaving and, and not giving you those services or giving you that love in the case of a relationship. So I'm stepping out of the relationship. I'm saying, you know what, I value myself in a way that you're not valuing me, and uh, and I would be remiss if I accepted that kind of treatment. What does that say about how I feel about myself? And in some ways, you know, there are one or two ways you can go about it. I could go to Washington and try to become a lobbyist or work for the AMA or really, you know, try to change the system, but that's not really me. I mean, I, I think, and I said in one of my posts, I think I'm going to act locally and think globally. In other words, um, I can only change what I do, and I don't have any real plans to become an activist. So instead, I'll be my own shining example. I'll step out of the system, do what I believe is right, and it's my little statement against what's happening to healthcare and what's happened to this world is that, you know what, I won't agree to it. I won't sign on the dotted line. This is not how I believe things should be. So I'm making myself my own example, and, and maybe I'll have a small effect on the world around me. 
Wow. Hmm. That's incredible. I mean, uh, I mean, as you were, were kind of uh, uh, considering this um, decision, um, I presume you know, that you were maybe even researching you know, you know, ways to do a micro type practice. Um, you know, because there's a lot of physicians that talk to me about this, but you know, they there's not a lot of resources out there, or there's a lot of people to ask questions and things. Um, how did you kind of How'd you come up with 200 or three? Why didn't you come up with that magic number? Was that, were you just running the numbers? Was, is that like an arbitrary number that you picked and kind of see where you're at? Or, or were there, there people that you were asking questions to or, or, or web pages or resources to, that, that you were uh, reading or following in this process? Well, there are a few things. One is I talked to people. Um, and I talked to a lot of people. And, and remember, I, as you, have been very involved in social media. And I've just been... I've been kind of trying to read the tea leaves in healthcare for for years. Um, so I've been watching as all this has been happening. I've been reading about it since 2005. I've been thinking about it. I've known that I haven't been happy with what's happening in medicine for a while. So I've been lucky enough to have this years and years perspective. Um, and then I, you know, in my area, for instance, when I told the patient that I was I was leaving and I was going into concierge medicine, you know what my patient said? She's like, "This is the fourth doctor that's done this to us in the last five years." Um, it's happening in my area because I'm in a little bit wealthier of an area in Highland Park and Lake Forest over there. Um, so we see a lot of this. So I know people who've gone through this. I, I don't know anyone doing home visits, but I know other people who've gone the concierge model uh, way. And, um, you know, I run my own business, so I, I have a good idea of what it takes to run a practice. It's not perfect, but, you know, I, I just figure I'll figure it out. I mean, it's important enough to me. I have some really good advisors, um, and I'm not going to allow fear to stop me from trying to at least change my world and maybe affect those few hundred patients. Now, why do they pick two to three hundred patients? Well, for me, it could be 50 patients or even 25. Thankfully enough, I can do my nursing homework and I also I, I work as a hospice and palliative care physician. So I have all sorts of things that can keep me busy outside of my own practice. I'm lucky enough to have other revenue streams. So I could just stop altogether and just do nursing homework. But I like the idea of somewhere around 200 patients because I think it's manageable. So if you think about 200 patients, you're going to have some healthy, some ill, some people in their 20s, some people in their 80s. I, I assume I could average it out to I'll probably see most patients five to six times a year. Um, and so if you think about five to six, let's say five times a year, 200 patients, that's 1,000 visits. And you separate 1,000 visits into five days a week, 50 weeks a year. That comes out to roughly four patients a day. So I think I could do a lot of good and spend a lot of time with people uh, by seeing four patients a day. So I wake up early in the morning, I go see my nursing home patients, and then at 8.30 or 9 in the morning, I go off and start driving to people's homes. And then I have between 9 to 5 or 9 to 4, however I want to plan it, um, to go see those four or five patients or whoever needs to be seen for the day. Um, and that gives me a lot of leeway. It gives me leeway to go see patients in the hospital gives me leeway to come home and take my kids to violin, which I'm going to do, you know, at 3.30 today. Um, it gives me leeway to both be very present in my family's life, uh, my patient's life, um, but but create something that I'll be proud of, and financially it'll be just fine. Now, when I've talked to, to physicians who have gone this route, um, one of the challenges that, that they have had is, um, kind of negotiating and working with with companies for diagnostic 
you know, testing that sometimes is needed as a diagnostician, whether it's blood work or x-rays or CAT scans or so in, in a concierge model that, that you're, you're setting up, um, you know, what if you would need, um, and I, you probably may, you haven't gotten this far yet, but, but uh, how would you go about doing some of those? I mean, a lot of people can do things like urine testing in offices and things, but what if they would need more complicated type of testing? How, how, how would that kind of work? Well, actually, I don't find that to be an issue at all. For one thing, and this is going to surprise a lot of people, I will still take insurance. I will still be enrolled in Medicare. In fact, I have to be because I'm seeing nursing home patients, and those people I will be billing Medicare and the traditional insurances. So first and foremost, I'll be paying, taking insurances, so as long as, like in an office, if I send a person for a CAT scan, insurance most likely will pay for it as long as I have a valid reason for doing it. As for blood tests, x-rays, EKGs, um, there are a few things I could do. Um, one is there are actually companies out there who will go to a patient's home and draw blood or do a chest x-ray, and they generally don't charge the physician. They actually charge Medicare. So if you order a CBC, which is a complete blood count, and a CMP, which is a chemistry count, um, and ask a lab to go there, the lab's going to go there, they're going to draw the blood, they're going to charge Medicare a drawing fee. Um, but not only that, but they'll actually charge Medicare for that complete blood count, complete metabolic panel, and they'll probably get about, you know, 100 to $200 for Medicare. It'll probably cost them about $2 to run it on their machine. So for them, there are a lot of companies out there that that's all they do. So you can have, it's kind of nice, you go see a patient in their house, say you need blood, and I'm calling the lab, and they'll be here in an hour or two, and they'll come draw your blood. And by the way, you need a chest x-ray. Well, there's a mobile radiology team will come here and I haven't looked into the specifics, but I'm pretty certain that it won't really cost me anything because most of those companies make their money on the services. Um, so it's fairly easy. And then for the rest of the stuff, I need a CAT scan. I just write a prescription for a CAT scan and tell them which hospital to go to. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as you know, a lot of the headaches for Medicare and those type of things are doing the outside paperwork, um, you know, like a patient needs a prescription, there's a preauthorization, or there's a CT, and there's a preauthorization. Um, I have, you know, a couple of staff members, that's, that's what they do all day. Uh, is that stuff that you're going to be doing? I mean, that's a lot of burden. Here's the beauty of it. There are a few things. So, one, I do most of this anyway, because in my current office, I have medical assistants, no nurses, and I do most of the work. So, I'm kind of used to it. But here's the beauty. See, I do that work on 2,500 patients right now. It's a heck of a lot easier when it's only 200. So, yeah, you have to do some of that stuff, and th- and that's my whole point. I can't change the system. I can't make Medicare not make me do those things. But what I can do is I can cut my patient load down to such an extent that if I have to spend an hour a day doing that kind of stuff, I have plenty of time. And that does, and then it doesn't really cut into my patient time. And so okay. that's that's kind of my shortcut is when you cut your patient population by the 20th or a 10th, the amount of paperwork goes down big time. And the nice thing about this me- this model is, so fine, let's say I'm overwhelmed. I'll just hire a medical assistant. I mean, I'll make plenty of money enough to pay someone thirty or forty or $50,000 a year to do whatever I want them to do. So if I decide I want them to go to patients' houses and draw their blood, fine, I'll pay them for that. Or if I decide I want them to do my paperwork for me, I'll train someone up, and then I can just let them do it. And so I'll make a touch less money, but honestly, when all is being said and done, Will make a huge difference. Uh, and my last question, then we'll move on off this topic. Is uh, do you kind of have a, a timeline on on how things are going to happen? I mean, I know you've been talking with your patients already. Do you kind of have a transition type of timeline, or not really yeah. yet? 
so January 1st, 2014. Um, I am a co-owner of a practice. So part of our contract was you have to give a year's notice because there's only two of us, so if one leaves, it kind of causes quite a bit of disruption. So I gave my year's notice in January, um, and I've been telling my patients now because I have uh, roughly 2,500 patients, I don't want them to hear about this the first time by a letter that is sent in the mail. So I knew I had to start fairly early the, the minute people come into my office. If I see 15 or 20 patients a day, I have 15 or 20 conversations at the end of the visit of, oh, by the way, things are going this way. And the reason why is I owe it to them. You know, when people come to me and they put their trust in me and bear their lives to me, um, the least I can do is talk to them face-to-face about, hey, I'm leaving this practice and, and you know, here's what's happening. So I started very early because I want to have a chance to get all that face-to-face time. Uh, and also in the future it will save me time because I won't get 3 million phone calls <laughs> the day my letter goes out to tell everybody. So I started fairly early in preparation uh, to make sure that I'm prepared and that I give people as long as necessary to really think about what they want for their health care and whether it will involve me or not. Um, I guess on the line is uh, internal medicine physician uh, and uh, founder of the blog, In My Humble Opinion, Dr. Jordan Grummet. Uh, follow him on Twitter um, as well. Uh, so in our remaining moments, look, uh, I want to you know, shift back to social media and get back to some fun stuff and, and maybe some reminiscing a, a little bit because uh, you, you and I kind of started at, at the same time. And and uh, you, you mentioned Grunt Talk already. Uh, uh, what, who, who are the other kind of uh, first-time uh first bloggers that uh, that you started reading, because probably a lot of them aren't even blogging anymore. Well, let me start by saying uh, and giving you a little memory of how I first heard of you. So if you remember Moose, her name is Doris Ballard. She used to be kind of the grand, grand dame of medical blogging years ago. Yeah, she, she uh, helped me a it, lot when I first started as well. Yeah, exactly. And she kind of helped people along, and everyone knew her. And if she wrote about you on her blog, uh, all of a sudden people would follow Well, she introduced both of us at the same time in the same post. She made a post about two new bloggers you need to follow, uh, and that was me and you. So you were one of the first (laughs) people that I was reading, too. Um, I don't know if you remember Charity Doc. Um, He had a beautiful literary blog about working in the ER that was just, just amazing. Um, Dr. Charles, the examining room of Dr. Charles. Yes, Dr. Charles. I always enjoyed reading him. Uh, the blog that Ape Manhattan actually stopped right when I started and then restarted again later. Um, yes. I, I always read Kevin MD from the beginning um, when sure. his posts were much different. Um, but it's been a small number. I actually don't don't follow a huge number of people. Twitter is amazing because Twitter has, has kind of changed all that because you, you, know, you follow smart people and you can get exposed to a million different blogs and a million different ideas and a million different articles about what's happening in medicine. So I think Twitter is really revolutionary in that sense, um, that it aggregates so well for you and it can open you up to new content uh, so quickly. Um, but, yeah, those those were the kind of people that I started with. And, I, you know, my blog has gone through many, many different transitions. In fact, <clears throat> my blog used to be called fineartdoctor.com, and then it became oh, in my right. humble thing. And then it became, in my humble opinion, and then actually I lost my blog. Like one day my blog disappeared, and it took me about three months to get it back. And when I did, they had to import it to a new web, to a new, um, to a new address. And that yeah. kind of killed my blogging for a while because it just it took the steam out of me. And then I eventually rebuilt myself 
uh, after that. But so it's been uh, it's been up and down. And I used to, you know, I blog about medicine, but I used to write stories. I used to write serial stories, um, just about random stuff that kind of touched on medicine. I did all sorts of kind of fun stuff. I used to put a lot of poetry up on my blog. It's just, you know, it's kind of gone through lots of different evolutions and revolutions. Um, and um, now, when you started writing, you, you, you used your real name, or were you anonymous like a lot of other bloggers at the time? Or I don't think I was intentionally anonymous. So when I started with Fine Art Doctor Blog, you know, it was one of a number of web pages connected to a website that had an About Me page. Um, but I think fairly early... Um, I used my name, and I certainly didn't hide in any way, shape, or form. I just, for whatever reason, never looked at it as an anonymous type thing. Um, it just wasn't part of the way I looked at it. And, you know, the, the person who I followed, my brother, who's been writing a blog since 2003, you know, was Andrew Grummet's blog. So it was like I never thought, hmm, maybe I'll blog anonymously and tell stories. So for me, it, it just didn't didn't kind of enter my thought process. Uh, now, an interesting question I have for you, because we started at the same time, is that, you know, I mean, we started, like, before Twitter, which, like, a lot of people are, like, related with something before Twitter. Um, <laughs> when when really the discussion was on the blog, I mean, and, you know, b- back in the day, you know, dozens and dozens of comments was really the the way that discussion uh, took place. And, and now um, there, there's very little comments on blogs these days. A lot of the discussion maybe has shifted to Twitter, maybe has shifted to Facebook. Um, what's kind of your perspective on that? I mean, is that, have you, have you, because I feel that some of the discussion kind of has been lost a little bit and it's been a little bit more shifting towards one-way communication and, and first-person marketing and that type of thing. What do you think about the, the pure discussion piece of social media now versus then? You know, it's funny because I think I've always been the opposite of the majority. Um, I was never amazingly social as a blogger. Um, so I was more into the one-way communication, believe it or not. As egotistical as it sounds, is I kind of like the one-way broadcasting of these are the random things going through my mind, and if you're interested, stop by, and if not, don't worry about it. Um, so I was never like, when I got blog comments, I wasn't a big responder. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't appreciate them. In fact, I really always did very much appreciate them. Um, but... I always kind of like the idea of putting something out there and letting other people decide what it meant. Um, but I agree with you a lot. I think there was a lot more conversation back then when there was multiple comments, et cetera. I think the conversation now is much faster. And because of Twitter, it's much more curt. I mean, it's, you know, three words with a post, with, with, a, with a link. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, and I think that's why you have things like tweet chats and that kind of stuff where people can actually try to produce a little more conversation. Um, but for better or for worse, we now communicate in small bites. I mean, when you and I started, people didn't really text message that much. They didn't instant message that much. Um, and they didn't tweet. And these things now are just such a huge part of our interaction. I think people now... You know, unless you're sitting in a room without any electronics, most of the way people communicate is in small spurts. Yeah, I, I remember when we started, I mean, what was considered a long blog post was maybe, I don't know, 400, 500 words, something like that. But now, you know, with, with Twitter and microblogging, I mean, 100 or 200 words, and people are like, oh, that's a long blog post. You had a lot to say. And I'm like, man, that's a lot <laughs> different than, than when we started, you know. 
Yeah, and it's the only the sad part about that is sometimes you really want to build something well. And, you know, there's there's an art to building your point or building a story, and sometimes that takes some space. Uh, but I think it's definitely it's been a challenge. I mean, if you want people to read you, and, and I think the wrong way to go about it is I want people to read me, uh, because I, I think you, you get into problems that way. But if, if that's really your goal, you have to find a way to say important and good things, but to say them in short sentences, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and we see that more than in text now. I mean, there, 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 there's video and video blogging and and Pinterest and all that kind of stuff. Um, um, for for you, Jordan, so are uh, are you kind of focused, uh, kind of on blogging and Twitter? Do, do you do you participate or are you on other social media platforms? Yeah, I mean, I I am mostly blogging. So blogging obviously takes up the most time because I write. Um, I definitely love Twitter, and I think Twitter as an aggregator is just a fabulous tool. Um, and really, the expansion of my social media world happened when I got onto Twitter. Um, I do Facebook, but it's not a major part. I mean, I think everyone does Facebook. I'm not a big fan of Pinterest yet. Um, you know, for me, I've got so much going on in my life. I mean, I, I have my hands in so many different things we haven't talked about, businesses, things like that. So for sure. me, I think time time commitment-wise, Twitter and, and blogging is enough. <laughs> um, that may change. <laughs> it, it all depends on how helpful things are. You know, what I like Twitter and blogging are, they're helpful. They're just very helpful to connect to people and to learn things. Uh, and, and how do you find uh, uh, topics to write about on your blog? Is it what happens day to day, or do you really plan ahead that much? Because everybody has a different style. Yeah. I, I don't. Um, I write about my life experiences, um, and often, you know, I like to listen to NPR on the radio. So on the days that I really think I need to write, I turn NPR off and put music on and just let the music overtake me and whatever I start thinking about is what I write about. Okay, great, great. Um, we're, we're quickly coming to the, the close of our of our conversation. I, I will let you kind of gather some thoughts uh, for some for some final thoughts for the audience. The question I'm going to ask you is, is social media uh, and medicine, and uh, you know, well, you know well, why you think that that uh, uh, that social media is is important to medicine. So I'll give you a, a couple minutes to kind of uh, gather your thoughts. There. I do want to share uh, people's information with you. My guest on the line has been uh, Dr. Jordan Grummet. Uh, his go go visit his blog. He's a lot of good stuff. It's called In My Humble Opinion. It's on Blogger or Blogspot. Uh, but just do a Google search for it. He's an internal medicine physician in uh, Highland Park, Illinois, going to be uh, starting on this journey um, of uh, uh, a micro practice or, or concierge medicine. Um, and uh, follow him on Twitter. Uh, you can use his name uh, there. And uh, um, <laughs> really interesting post on Kevin MD today. I won't get into that, but it's really interesting listening, uh, reading some of those comments there. Uh, and also, you know, it's a, uh, in my humble opinion as well. So thank you so much for the time. Uh, but as we kind of uh, uh, finish our conversation there, Jordan, uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you, you know, uh, social media and medicine, you and I kind of started uh, right around uh, the same time. And, and uh, we've been obviously advocates for this, but uh, share with my audience, um, yeah, just some final thoughts on social media and medicine and, and, and you know, why you think uh, that those are uh, important to you. So I think people, physicians can get into social media for lots of reasons and fundamentally to educate. But I'll tell you, for me, it's something a lot more personal. See, what I've seen in medicine over the last bunch of years is physicians are being forced to change in ways that they don't necessarily always like. 
And I think in a lot of ways we've got gotten a bad reputation. Why is healthcare costs out of control? Because physicians aren't being careful enough. Why are hundreds of thousands of patients dying a year? It's because physicians are making mistakes. Um, you know, physicians, people think they get paid too much and they're driving around their Mercedes and why would they dare complain? I think we're at a big risk of losing our audience. In a sense, we as physicians, the most important for people for us are our patients. And I think politicians and the world out there is trying to color us in one vision of who we are. See, to me, I think the key for us as a profession to survive and flourish is I think our patients need to know who we are and they need to see our hearts and they need to see what we're made of. So I like social media. I like to write. I like to blog. I like to tweet because I can give patients or lay people who aren't practicing medicine a view into what it feels like from the other side of the stethoscope because I think patients come to our office and they bear their souls. And I think as we as physicians, when our patients come to the office and they bear our souls and we don't say anything back and we don't give anything in return except take two pills and call me in the morning, I think we really run the risk of, of losing their trust and faith. So when people read my writings and my blogs and they sit there and they say, hmm, I never knew a physician thought about those kind of things, I've helped redraw those, those uh, you know, connections that I think are being lost with what's happening in healthcare and what's happening in our world. Uh, so to me, as a physician, I blog because I want to make sure our patients know who we are. I want, I want them to see our hearts. I want them to know that we are people who care deeply about them we have frustrations. Um, we have bad days just as they do. Uh, and that for the grand majority of us, at the end of the day, our hope is that we help people. Uh, and I think that's priceless. And that's what I can do. I can broadcast that out into the world and hope other people see it. Wow. Uh, couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, that, that is why you out there should, should, uh, should read Jordan's blog because uh, you, you, will, you will get that... Uh, uh, it's great statements uh, like that. Uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. Uh, well, I'll definitely be following you. We should I'll bring you back on the show as the time get, gets closer because I know a lot of people, me, one of them, are going to be kind of watching you on this journey as you get ready for the beginning of next year. Uh, it's very exciting, and I definitely hear what you're saying as far as, you know, um, you know, it's, it's got to stop, you know, kind of taking this kind of <laughs> – uh, emotional and, and financial abuse <laughs> from yeah, from yeah. our friend, from our friends in Washington, and uh, it, it is uh, be exciting to kind of see see how you the next chapter in your story. Yeah, no, I, I've enjoyed this greatly, and and you know I wanted to point to you, Mike, too. It's been a, a great role model, I think, for a lot of us from the very beginning. Uh, I think you've blazed a lot of trails, and I think um, I think we're all watching, and we're all saying, "Hmm, I can do interesting things too." <laughs> very good, very good. Well, hey, you know, it's uh, thanks, thanks a lot for the time. We'll definitely, definitely bring you back on the show, and uh, it's been a very pleasant uh, and, and uh, great conversation. Thank you so much for the time, sir. No problem, anytime. All right, uh, so uh, I'll be back uh, uh, in in a thirty seconds. Here, I will have my closing thoughts on something that has happened in the family medicine community here this week. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Savilla. Go to FamilyMedicineRocks.com, and uh, I will be right back.
And welcome back to the Family Minutes and Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Savilla. And uh, so um, just, just just for a couple more minutes, just uh, kind of <laughs> indulge me here for a little bit. Uh, uh, this is my closing thought for the day. Uh, is a big shout-out to uh, my good friends in the Family Medicine community. Um, and a couple of days ago, uh, I believe that uh, Family Medicine uh, made a huge statement on uh, social media and uh, it happened a couple of days ago, and uh, uh, Politico.com, uh, kind of more the political website, uh, people may be familiar with it. They had a, a healthcare breakfast uh, talking about scope of practice, and uh, they had uh, uh, one of the members of the board of directors of the uh, American Academy of Family Physicians, uh, Dr. Wanda Filer, was there, uh, bringing the voice of the AAFP uh, there. And, uh, you know, kind of what happened, you know, during that hour and a half session was that, you know, family medicine, the AAFP really kind of laid out on social media, you know, kind of, you know, how we think uh, primary care should go forward. Um, and uh, our friends at the uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians um, have the Twitter chat um kind of uh, uh documented on a platform called Storify and if you go to pafp.com i believe you will kind of see the uh the conversation that took place uh with scope of practice and and basically you know there there's been you know discussions with primary care physicians family medicine physicians nurse practitioners uh on you know who should be the people focused on uh, to deliver primary care. Um, and our friends in the uh, nurse practitioner community um, believe that independent practice nurse practitioners should be the ones uh, delivering a lot of that care because there aren't enough primary care physicians um, out there. And, you know, I've read their point of view. I understand their point of view. I disagree with their point of view. But I'm glad they were there as part of the breakfast to give their voice. I'm glad that um, AAFP was there to give their voice. But what's hap- what was what's happening in the background um, on Twitter was that there were a lot of family medicine physicians, family docs out there sharing their voice and saying, hey, <clears throat> you know, uh, it should be primary care physicians and primary care nurses. We should not be fighting amongst one another. You know, the patient should be what we're focused on, patient-centered, and we should be advocating for more primary care all around, whether it is primary care physicians, nurse practitioners. You know, we believe that that nurse practitioners should be, you know, part of the primary care team. Um, And, you know, there's been a lot of documentation and, and studies out with primary care physicians, you know, delivering primary care, uh, effectively um, and uh, in, in a uh, uh, evidence-based type of way. Uh, so <clears throat> just want to give a big shout-out, big kudos uh, to my pals in the family medicine community, the FM Revolution community. A special uh, big shout-out to our friends on the West Coast uh, who got up at 5 o'clock, well, started at 5 o'clock. They got up before 5 a.m. West Coast time to uh, participate in this chat, um, especially uh, uh, our good friends, uh, the AAFP board chair himself, uh, Glenn Stream, was uh, tweeting along, um, and also our, our pal, Dr. Jay Lee, uh, 
um, out there in uh, California uh, who is tweeting out um, as well. And also, you know, our friends at the uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians who did a lot of work uh, leading up uh, to that breakfast and following that uh, breakfast to uh, get the word out um, and let people know what the point of view of the family medicine revolution community was. So, uh, so big shout out to them. I'm glad that they uh, they happened. You, you, I really wanted to. I was hoping that, that the family medicine revolution community would rise up and uh, to share our story, and they did um, uh, a couple of days ago. And I hope this will be the first of many opportunities for the family medicine community, the family medicine revolution community to share our story because we need to do that more now than ever. So that ends our show here today, kids. Thanks again uh, to my guest, uh, Dr. Jordan Grummet, uh, founder of the blog, In My Humble Opinion. Also follow him on Twitter with his name, Jordan Grummet, um, and a uh, longtime blogger. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that uh, that our friend, uh, Moof, uh, featured us on a blog post. I was so happy to be featured anywhere back at the time that I totally forgot about that. So uh, thank you, Jordan, for uh, uh, for reminding me of that. Follow his blog, In My Humble Opinion, and also on Twitter as well. Very excited about coming up in April. Um, our good friend uh, Meredith Gould will be here, digital strategist, author, blogger, founder of the Church Social Media Chat, hashtag C-H-S-O-C-M, will be uh, talking about this tweet that she did yesterday. Ah, Twitter, I remember when public conversations offered rich engagement among tweets wrestling with great questions. Now I only get that through direct message. So is that true or false? We'll be uh, talking about that. Also, coming up in April, we're going to be uh, previewing some uh, family medicine meetings uh, coming up. Uh, the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine Annual Meeting. <clears throat> the American Academy of Family Physicians National Conference of Special Constituencies, and and I'll be speaking at the Nebraska Academy of Family Physicians Annual Meeting as well. So all that coming up for a very important April here on the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. So uh, thanks again for, uh, for joining me live, or for those of you who uh, downloaded the podcast, again, thank you so much for your support of the show here, getting thousands and thousands of downloads each week. Uh, that is because of you out there, and I say, as much as I can, I am humbled that anybody wants to listen to what I am talking about. Uh, so thank you so much for your support of the show. My name is Mike Savella. Go to FamilyMedicineRocks.com. Subscribe to this show on your iTunes. You can also go to uh, blogtalkradio.com slash FamMedRocks. They have an iTunes link there, also an RSS feed there as well. Uh, but you can get most of my um, links at FamilyMedicineRocks.com. Again, I've uh, been doing some changeovers on that. Hopefully that link should be back up and running very soon. So, uh, hey, enjoy the March Madness out there, kids. I still have this game on, uh, and uh, hopefully your brackets will hold together at least through day one. <laughs> That's all I have for you. Thank you so much for joining me, either live or on the podcast. Have a great day. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. I'm on call this weekend, so look out, kids. <laughs> we'll talk to you all very soon. Have a good day, everybody. Goodbye.